In an increasingly complex world, Greif Philanthropic Solutions is proud to sponsor Hat Radio and the one and only Avram Rosenzweig. No one is better than Avram at simplifying the art of communication, providing inspiration, and unifying people of all backgrounds. GPS is there to help you navigate the charity landscape. Avram is there to help you navigate life. Step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig, and this is episode 47, getting closer to number 50. I'm really delighted to have as my guest today my very dear friend, Michael Rubin. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great. Michael is the uh, ritual director at Bet David Synagogue, which is not far from my house, of which I'm a member, sort of a quasi-member. You guys consider me a member. I just I never pay dues. I still consider you a member, Avram. <laughs> you're a good you're, man. You're not getting off so easily. You're a good man. Thank you so much. Now, why I love Michael is because he's a, he's a very good man. He uh, was involved in hockey in Israel. You were a tour guide in Israel, which I'm fascinated by because it's a big deal, isn't it? It's a great deal. Right? It's a great yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, just a very, very spiritual fellow. I've always enjoyed being with you and talking with you. Um, you, you, I, I find that you bring a lot to the synagogue, and when people talk about you, they always talk about you in very endearing terms. So I figure, what the hell, I might as well have the guy on as a guest. I'm honored. <laughs> now, just what I call some uh, house cleaning before we launch into our interview, and you are welcome to, to dive in any time. Um, I want to thank Mark Greif for his sponsorship of the show, GPS. That's Greif. Uh, philanthropic services. You know, Mark used to be president yes. there at the shul. Yeah. Uh, Gary Samuel, in memory of Catherine and Leslie Samuel, his parents, God bless their souls. Uh, he's a very uh, tikkun olam sort of guy, which is repairing the world. He wanted me to make a mention of, he's actually getting into meditation. Do you do meditation at all? Not, not in the formal sense. Not really, no. You do it informally? Yeah. How would that work? That works uh, according to my interpretation of what I think answers my needs to be having some moments to myself. Closing your eyes. Yeah. Meditative, I would say, as opposed to formal meditation. Right. Right. So an interesting technique within meditation, and I told Gary that I would mention this, and again, he's a sponsor of uh, Hat Radio, is what you do is you close your eyes and you concentrate on something that touches a warm spot inside of you. With me, it would be my son. What might it be with you? I was just thinking of my daughter. Of your daughter, okay? So you close your eyes, you concentrate on that. Meditation is something very simple. Meditation is being hyper-focused on one singular idea, fact, feeling, whatever it is, right? So you, you, you concentrate on your daughter. We'll close our eyes. We're doing that right now in the studio. And 
you allow that warmth to spread out over your entire being, to spread out over your entire body, and ultimately getting filled up with that beauty and that sense of love, uh, that sense of affection, all of the, the, the relationship stuff that makes us tick. That is meditation in its simplest form, or at least one technique. And uh, try it, especially if you're anxious or if you're going through tough times. When, when do you find your quiet moments? Like for what particular need, Michael? I take them usually in the middle of the day. Uh, I have a rather long day, long schedule with duties at the shul and, right. and elsewhere. And uh, starting early and going late, I need some kind of a break in the middle of the day. And that's ideal time for me, mid-afternoon. You, you do have a long schedule. It's interesting when you work in a synagogue or a shul, as we call it, you're, you're there for the early service. You're there, what, 8 o'clock service? 7 o'clock. You're there for the 7 yeah. o'clock service. You stick around, right? I stick around. Yeah. Do you go home at all? Yeah, during in the middle of the day, I take a break and go home. But I'm there first thing in the morning. As a matter of fact, I usually get in at about 6.15. So yeah. I have a few moments of that meditative mood before services begin. And then you're in the synagogue most or all of the day? Most of the morning, take a few hours off in the afternoon, teach in the evening, other types of programs. Yeah, so I can be there. Split shift, you might call it. There, there's a there's a, a small synagogue downstairs where we do our morning services, and it's dark when it's not being used. Sometimes I'll walk by it if I'm leaving late. I, I try to grab some books that the synagogue gives away. I love that. Most of my books here are from your shul. <laughs> Come by again. We've, we've got a bit of an accumulation. Lately. Right, right, because you're divesting of your library. Partly that, but mostly because people bring in collections of books that they've had from parents from grandparents from yeah some people they're you know they're trying to remember in a in a fond way and they would prefer not to give them away uh to a place where they don't think they'll be used so yeah they- i'm really excited by the way about talking to you about your job because i can only imagine how many stories you have how many memories you have you know i know coming from a rabbinical home what it's like to work in a synagogue environment and it's fascinating. Uh, so we're going to get that. I just need to do a little bit more house cleaning here. You'll bear with me. Absolutely. I want to shout out to uh, Adrian Berkovitz, who is producing a magical musical documentary called The Journey Home. Now, it's about his father, Eduardo. Uh, it's live in Toronto on Wednesday, March 25th, up in Markham. I'll tell you more about that the closer we get. But basically, his father was 16 years old when his concentration camp was liberated. And uh, this musical that his son Adrian created, he's a singer-songwriter, um, is all about that. And it's going to be fast. Have you ever heard of that, a musical about the Holocaust? It sounds like a way that's going to engage people from this generation. Right. That's what you need to be doing. Right? Yeah. Okay. Good, good. Wednesday, March 25th. Mark that date and uh, attend because it's going to be something very unique. I also want to say hello to Noah Goodbaum, who is an awesome rapper. Check him out on Facebook. Uh, next week, I'm going to be interviewing David Shore uh, of Hollywood fame, uh, known for the show House and The Good Doctor. Do you ever watch? Did you watch those shows or do you watch? A those bit, shows? a bit. I know, yeah, but I know the name, yeah. Yeah, David yeah. is from here, yeah. Southern yeah. Ontario. Yeah. So he gave me half hour of his time. But I'm really looking forward to this interview, Michael. <laughs> uh, I also want to tell people that today when we record this here in Toronto, I'm assuming across Canada, I don't know if into the States, but it's called Giving Tuesday. I- is it a national thing or is it more than that? Do you know? 
I'm not so familiar with it other, but I think it's a great culmination to the obsessive purchasing that takes place the few days before. So right, it's a right. wonderful way to, to end this Thanksgiving weekend. Right. Do you buy Hanukkah gifts for anyone? Yeah. Yeah. Did you go overboard or are you pretty nah, conservative? We're pretty, we're pretty modest with those kinds of things. Uh, but our, our get-together is the is the main aspect is of it? Hanukkah as opposed to uh, purchasing gifts. Well, what do you guys do? What, what happens? We get some family together that we don't see that often. Mm. Uh, we schlep them out to our apartment in uh, downtown Toronto and have a, a wonderful time. You have good dinner? Year. Yeah. Everybody You're... brings. It's kind of potluck. Do you cook at all? A bit. Do I you? used to do more, but my partner is such a wonderful is she? Uh, culinary expert that I wouldn't dare try to compete with that. <laughs> yeah, you should cook, man. I, I started cooking a few months ago, more so, and I'm fascinated by the whole thing, really. I made myself a sort of stew yesterday, a vegetarian stew, and I spiced it up. I have like 30 different spices in my cupboard. I just bought apple pie spice. Yeah, have you ever tried that I apple? Tried. It adds a little bit of sweetness to it because I cut out sugars, so I like that. I'm putting a lot of uh, cinnamon and stuff and a lot of chocolate. So I'll make, uh, as an example, uh, this sort of stew, and I'll bring out the flavor through cocoa. It's fantastic. It sounds great. <laughs> it, it is but good. But I, I found the cooking experience, especially in recent years, is best enjoyed when when i do it together with my spouse it would be it's great it's it would great. be but i'll tell you something there is there is something unique about doing it for yourself as well last night i made this dinner for myself i was on my own last night and i sat down and i ate it and i so enjoyed it i was smiling the whole time smiling the whole time but sometimes the spices get me in the gut but we won't go into that. Well, the ones you mentioned make my mouth water. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you should taste my cookie, man. It's really good. Not to sound arrogant. But because it's uh, Giving Tuesday, I want to remind people about particularly one of the needs in the world, which is children in Syria. You, you don't have to go far to find out what's happened or what's happening to the children in Syria and how you might be able to, I don't know, enhance their lives. Uh, Syria's a hell. It's an absolute hell, and it's getting more and more hellish as we move forward. So just go online and see what you can do for those poor kids in Syria. You know what they say, the old adage is that the first victims of war are the children. And in Syria is a very good example of that. God bless them. Um, I'm starting a, CN, a Canadian Jewish News podcast. Yeah, I'm starting it in February, Fantastic. and I need a name. Do you have a name for it? I'll give, I'll give it some thought. Jew-ish. Someone told me Jew-ish. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like Michael Rubin-ish. <laughs> you'll get something good, I got no doubt. I'm giving I have a giveaway. If I use your if I use your name, you'll get a what's it called I was gonna say a blueberry. Not a blueberry, the uh, wireless speaker. Uh Neely, um my friend Neely lives in Israel. She has a B and B in the Galilee. Uh, it's called Yavna L. Uh, you can find it at Yavna L B and B dot com. So Yavna is Y A V N E E L B, the word and, then B again dot com. She also works on a loom and she made my son's talit, his prayer shawl for his bar mitzvah. So check her out. She does beautiful stuff. And finally, I want you to check out another podcast, which is called uh, The Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral. It's with Eddie Cohen out of Los Angeles. It's an interesting show. It's on Podbean, and it's about the mind-numbing times we live in. 
uh, just too much social media. What, what do you think of that? You teach bar mitzvah kids. Do you think there's way too much social media going on? I always think it's a great thing to have something to choose from. So I think that the the amount out there is not is not the problem of the people who are putting it out. It's the problem of the people who need to choose what's worth listening to and what's uh, what's worth selecting. Uh, yeah, I'm all for having as much out there as possible and uh, making good choices. Now, part of what you do at Bet David is teaching children their bar mitzvah, right? Working together with them to get them prepared. Nicely said. Nicely said. So you have to sometimes teach them Hebrew, I imagine. They may not know it at that point. Ideally, they come to me with at least some basic Hebrew, but that's not always the case. Right. Regardless of what they or their parents have claimed. Yeah. Or the name of the day school from which they've come. Right, right. They shall remain nameless. Um, But you also teach them what's called trup. Definitely. Now, I had Sadie Dome on Hat Radio. You know Sadie. Sure. So she's a lovely woman, right? Lovely woman. Great colleague. Uh, I love working with her. She actually prepares uh, a couple of kids a year from our congregation. Does she really? And as soon as I see the name Sadie... I know I don't have to do anything except call them a week before the event. That's pretty cool. That's a nice testimonial there. And she taught my son bar mitzvah. It was a very nice experience for him. She's, As you said, she's lovely. And uh, She came on the show and she talked about the trop a little bit. So I just want to remind our listeners, trop is what? Explain what trop is. Well, I'll give you the I'll give you the, the straight answer first, and then I'll give you another interpretation of trop. Okay. But trop is simply the chant and directions of how to pronounce as well as sing biblical verses. It's used in different contexts on different occasions on a weekly basis for the Parsha, but also on special occasions such as Megillat Esther on Purim, among other things. Uh, but it's more than the singing. It's, it's really a way of how to pronounce and phrase the words properly. Mm-hmm. And wh- why is that so important? So important because I'm convinced if you really want to understand what the Tanakh, what the Bible has to say, whether it be the Torah, the, the prophets, the, the writings, you have to understand trop. If you don't, if you can't follow the rhythm and the poetry of the text in whatever form it is, then you're missing uh, a full appreciation of what the, the Bible has to offer us. Oh, isn't that fascinating? So when you read the portion of the week, you read it with a... a that, that that in mind, the trop in mind, and the poetry of it? One of the most inspiring things I have on a regular basis is reading the Torah every week. Is it? Because as many times as I've gone over it in the years that I've served as uh, Balkriyat, Beth David, and other places... Which is the person who reads the Torah, yes. That person's task. I find something new every week. And part of it, I'd say a good part of it, is not just going over the text, but going over the text with, with the trop, with that... Uh, cantillation system, the singing system, the phrasing, the grammatical system. If you don't have all those pieces together, you just don't have a complete picture of what what there is in the Bible. I find that fascinating. So let's say the story of Jacob and his two wives, sisters, right? Rachel and Leah. Well, how might you read that? How might you see that? What do you see underneath it, if you will, that I might not? Well, let me give you let me give you another example, yeah. if you don't mind. Yeah. So, for example, there's certain tropes that are very rare, and when they show up, they're trying to say something very powerful. Mm-hmm. And other tropes, which are a little fancier, are chosen for various reasons that have a connection with the text itself. But let me give you an example. When Joseph is tempted by the wife of Potiphar, you kind of wonder what's going on in his mind. Here's this uh, 
we find enough series on television which talk about infidelity of wives or husbands. Yes. So you're wondering what's going on in Joseph's mind. So what does the Torah choose, or at least the editors choose to put? They place something called a shalshelet uh, when Joseph is in front of Potiphar's wife. And what is that shalshelet? It's another trope, which is a fancy one, but sung three times in succession. So it sounds something like this. La 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 And why is it doing that? It's going up and down because Joseph, it's not simple. As pure as you might think he is, he's considering, look, you know, she's pretty good looking. She's a sexy woman. Should I do it? Should I not do it? So it goes up and down. And you really get a sense of the dilemma, the situation he's in, just from that one trope note. It takes oh. a while. It gives the congregation an opportunity to appreciate a little more of what, what, what really is going on in that Take a big breath. Absolutely. Now, yeah. is that what the trope is all about then? Is the, the, the trope was placed under words in a particular way then. It wasn't happenstance. Not at all. It's not circumstantial. It's not uh, arbitrary. The... People who devised the trope back in the 7th and 8th century in Tiberias, where that system came into place, uh, had in mind understanding the content and the, and the textual nuances by placing certain accents that have different melodies to them in different positions. Of course, there's a lot of repetitive and simple type of chanting, and most of the text might be considered as such. But there's certain instances, such as the one I just mentioned, where you need something a little different, something a little more bombastic, something a little gentler, something that gives you a real sense of, of what's going on behind the scenes. And that, and that text has relevance. Uh, it's not a real challenge. It's not uh, an extended effort to really appreciate relevance in the biblical text today. The, the situations, the dynamics, the dysfunctional social interaction is something that we come across today as well it's just a, most definitely it's just in a different historical setting like jacob and esau his brother absolutely yeah i find it fascinating by the way by the way in the portion where it says you'll tell me the right language for it but basically esau was coming to visit his brother jacob they were twins jacob was the scholar he was the learner he was the compassionate kind human being esau was the ruddy baby you know born all red and pursued a life of hunting Right, very coarse, very difficult. Uh, some of the midrashim, some of the scriptures say he was a murderous fellow and very evil. So he's coming to meet his bro- brother Jacob, and and the Torah says that Jacob was was both afraid. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. W- w- what was the terms? He was afraid. He was afraid because he had departed. He had separated from his brother, not under the best of conditions, uh, one of hatred and jealousy. Uh, he escaped to uh, his family's home up in the north. And when he comes to meet him, he doesn't know what his brother's going to be thinking. Yeah. Does he still hold that grudge? Does he still want to do him in? Yeah. Is this going to be a genuine uh, reconciliation? Or is it going to turn into something that's out of his control? And he takes all sorts of fascinating measures should it develop in the wrong way. Yes, yeah, right. But the language that I'm speaking of is something along the lines of he was afraid and he was intrepid. There's two different words that they use there. And the, and the interpretation on that was he was afraid that he might have to hurt Asaph. He was intrepid, again, whatever the language is there, that he himself might be hurt. Now, to me, that's a fascinating reflection of humankind. Have you ever had that feeling, Michael? You're, you're a hockey player in Israel. I used to love watching you play hockey, by the way. You were outstanding. And I know you're a very humble guy, but you were outstanding. And uh, you know that idea of going into the corners and getting crunched 
versus going into the corner and crunching someone else. I had to encourage my son, Noah, to be more aggressive in the corners. And he said to me in a very pure, beautiful way, he said, Daddy, I don't want to hurt anybody. So I'm glad you bring up the hockey example because uh, thinking about it, I think we often say that when you get on the ice, and, and not everybody's able to do this, when you get on the ice, you need to be a different kind of person. Yeah. You need to allow your aggressive side, uh, your competitive side to take control. Uh, and we of, I often heard of players, well, he's a, he's, he's a wonderful, he's such a nice guy off the ice, but yeah. on the ice, he's a killer. He's a, <laughs> And I've always he's, found that fascinating because I don't think I've ever felt that when I get on the ice. I can't say 100% consistency was what I was able to do in terms of maintaining a certain uh, element of not nice guy, but the kind of person who cares what, what you're doing on and off the ice. Right. But I think we allow ourselves to develop that dichotomy in our character, sometimes when it comes to sports, sometimes when it comes to com competition, professionally as well. Guy's wonderful with his family, with his friends, but he gets in the courts as a lawyer or in other professions, he's got to turn into something else. He's got to turn into a predator. Yes. Uh, not sure if that's necessary. Uh, and I think trying to find the balance between uh, wanting to succeed without harming others is not always something we're, we're successful in doing, either as individuals, communities, and certainly not nations. So this, this takes me to the next question, just stepping back for a second, about your career and your work within the Jewish community, uh, both locally and in Israel. You and I grew up in an environment, we're pretty close in age. How, how old are you? Just turned 60. Hey, long ago. Mazel yeah, tov, yeah. man. How do you feel? Great. You do, eh? Absolutely. No, but how do you feel about being 60? To be honest, it. Uh, I think my family makes more of it than I do. Yeah. Uh, I don't see it as anything other than a number, to be sincere and honest about that. Uh, once in a while, you know, I think of that digit change, and uh, you look in the mirror and you think, wow, I'm 60? Yeah, right. Really? Right. But I can't say on a daily basis I'm uh, depressed or brought down by that. Did you have anyway. a 60th? No, I kind of avoided that. Yeah, I want to avoid it too. Uh, Me too. How come you avoided it? We we celebrated, but uh, just as a regular birthday, not anything, not as anything special. I didn't see any need to make a big deal out of it. So, you and I grew up at the same time. We know Gilligan's Island, Hogan's Heroes. You know, our favorite chocolate bar would have been Kit Kat, and so on. What is your favorite chocolate bar? Coffee Crisp. Oh, good one. Oh, I love it. No hesitation. No, good one. Excellent. What about in Israel? What was your favorite? In Israel, chocolate wasn't my big thing. Bamba was. What is Bamba? Bamba is this peanut flavored uh, puffs. Okay. They're, was, good. They're good. Were they awesome? They're good. Yeah. You remember the Agozi bar? I think. Oh, yeah. That yeah. was also very good. I knew a guy who ran for uh, school council. His name was Agozi, and he gave out Agozi bars to everybody, all the students. So, that being said, you and I could have chosen, and likely would have chosen, if not for circumstances, to be in business to be a lawyer, an accountant, a doctor, but we didn't. And I was always curious about you specifically as to why you chose this course in life. Why didn't you open up a company? Why didn't you study to be a lawyer? You're a very bright man. How is it that you got on this path, let's say a spiritual career, if you will, uh, versus one of profiting? It's a good question. 
I would say part of it is not necessarily out of intent. Uh, I think I had little interest in pursuing a career in business when I was younger. And as I completed high school and began uh, university, even before I, I began that process, uh, I decided that I didn't want to, to follow that path. My, yeah. first, my first year, as a matter of fact, at university, right after high school, was all sciences with the anticipation of possibly applying for medicine or something like that. Uh, so I took maths, physics, chemistry, Were you good anthropology. at it? I was decent at it, yeah. Math, I was I was okay at, uh, but it was a complete turnoff that first year. Was it? And I took a year off after that. Got got out of school altogether. I, I knew I wasn't ready for it. I had no idea what I wanted to do, and okay. so continuing along a line that I wasn't sure of seemed bad choice. Uh, and afterwards, I decided uh, those things were not for me. I studied history at university, uh, anthropology. Loved those. Loved the arts in that sense, and. Continued through uh, school without really having any clear idea what, what I was going to do with that, mm -hmm. but developing the idea that I wanted to give Israel a shot, yes. whatever, whatever that meant. Uh, as a matter of fact, after high school, when I went to chat, there used to be a program where the graduating class went to Kibbutz Sad uh, in the south of Israel. They spent a couple of months there and then traveled a bit. Uh, so a friend of mine and I... During the summer, we talked about staying in Israel after that, not going back to school. And we deliberated, and he stayed, and I didn't. I didn't have the guts, I guess. I, I, I conformed with what perhaps was expected, went back and started that uh, academic path. Right. But I had a sense that uh, that wasn't the end of my uh, relationship, or at least ambition, to spend some significant time in Israel. And so about five years later, that came to fruition when I, when I made Aliyah. Is he still there? Fascinating story. <laughs> so I'm, I went to Israel in 1985, the end of 1985. A month before I left, a month before I left, my friend came back to Canada. Did he? With his wife. He did. And I remember meeting him a couple of days before. I think it was even less than that. It was maybe two weeks. Yeah. I remember meeting him a few days before getting together with him and sharing stories, experiences of the seven years we haven't really had much time together. And it was this crisscrossing. It was fascinating. Uh, he'd stayed. I'd left back in 78. And now in 1985, he's coming back to Canada and I'm heading off to Israel. Yeah, that, that is like two ships crossing in yeah, the night. Yeah. What is it about Israel that, that was so attractive to you? My parents were super involved with Israel. Uh, they took us there when we were when I was 11 years old, the whole family, 1970. Fell in love with the place. My dad loved archaeology, and he got me into it. Uh, I remember getting off the plane when we got there in 1970, and as you see in you know in movies and other places you read about i got down on the tarmac at the airport kiss kiss the tarmac you did i did yeah. i just felt the need to follow through with that uh arriving ritual in israel for the first time and you were 10 years old i was 11 years old at the time yeah it was kind of funny when i think to me that's it. a beautiful image it was it was it was amazing it was amazing and that that trip just put me in love with israel yeah and that connection and that i think love for 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 israel only developed and over, over the next uh, decade and a half, 
before I decided that I was ready to, to head off there. But, you know, having gone to day schools, associated chat, being involved in a, in a synagogue, parents super involved with Israel. And my sister had made Aliyah a number of years before. There was a lot drawing me to Israel and the hope to do something there that would be meaningful for me. So your career path essentially followed a passion for Israel, hence the Jewish people. Would that be correct? Yeah, because when I was in Canada also, I I worked in a number of capacities for Canadian Jewish Congress, for the World Zionist Organization, doing things, research, etc., that were very much involved with, uh, obviously, the Jewish community, uh, both in Toronto and at large. Uh, so I think that's another one of the elements that... Uh, allowed me to feel I have something that I want to give and that I want to get from being involved in, in uh, something having to do with Jewish peoplehood. How was Israel? Phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, it seems like another life at this point since I, because I've been back for so long, but the, I remember my arrival in Israel for, I don't hesitate to use the term, the word Zionist uh, inclinations and ambitions. But, but, but you make a point of saying that. I say that because at the time, that's the you know the traditional Zionist idea was something that had really been implanted in me. Yeah. The, the idea, the concept of Israel as a home for the Jewish people, as a rejuvenation, a regeneration of of uh, Jewish spirituality and and physicality, uh, and I thought and I thought that that's something that I want to experience as well, even if I'm arriving at a later date. Uh, and I think one of, one of the challenges for me in Israel was coming at, a, at an age where I'd missed out on a lot of elements that are crucial to Israeli identity, school, youth movement, army. Right, uh, right. And all those things I, I had kind of missed. And some of the things I tried to do there in the initial years were an effort to, in some vicarious manner, experience that through the, the young people I worked with and through some of the things that I was doing. So one, one of the cooler things that you did was you became a tour guide in Israel, right? And for those of us in the know who have had tour guides or done a little bit of research into them, being a tour guide is not as simple as registering with the Ministry of, of Tourism. There's an entire course that you have to take, a prolonged course, and you have to know aspects of Judaism now, in history, secular stuff. I mean, it's a whole gamut of things because you could be leading a tour for a Christian group from Kentucky or a Chinese group or a Jewish group. So it's not a single, simple thing to be a tour guide in Israel, is it? So the, there, there are two things about it. The first thing is the, is the term itself. Yeah. Semantics are incredibly important. And although on the badge that you would wear as a guide, taking groups around of whatever nature, it said tour guide, Never referred to myself as a tour guide. I always right. referred to myself, and this is the, the preferred term for a lot of uh, people who are in that profession, a field educator. Okay. Uh, however, however you understand that. But uh, a guide, as I came to appreciate, you know, somebody who is showing you around, pointing things out. That in itself is a type of educator, but it doesn't quite fit, I think, in terms of a a term that describes what you're doing there. Because I always saw myself first and foremost as an educator in Israel. Uh, be, and because correctly, as you say, to be a guide in Israel, unlike the guides that I've experienced in different places, both here in North America and especially in Europe, where they take you around, 
a city for a period of time and they show you sites that are of interest or, or not. Right. But in Israel, the, the concept is that you're responsible for everything that has to do with knowing about Israel, from botany to from archaeology to anthropology to zoology, history, politics, sociology, everything. You need to be ready to present something about Israel in each of those fields. And of course, you're not an expert in everything. And, and if you think you can be, then you're greatly mistaken right. and you're going to fail. Right. But you have to find what you're most interested in, but you have to be able to deal at least uh, peripherally and, and superficially with some of those others. So give, give me an example of I come to Israel and I'm there with my family and there's 20 of us and you're taking us on a tour. What might be a real funky ass place that you would take us to and walk us through how you would present it? So it depends a lot on the group. And then and programs are, of course, built on the on the type of group. You have a bar, but mitzvah group coming there to celebrate as a family or a bus of a group from a from a congregation. Your challenge is to engage the parents and the kids and sometimes the grandparents. And that that's that's a that's no small task right. to try to find right. ways to deal with three different generations. And I can honestly say that of all the groups I had, there was only one that I experienced that had no interest in anything other than getting to the malls and the restaurants. But that 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 was pretty Did angry. you get angry at them? Nah, what does it help? You accept it. Yeah. You're getting paid for it. Yeah. You enjoy it, whatever it is, and 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 you move on to the next group. Okay, that's got fair more, enough. More potential. Fair enough. But if you're trying to find something that's engaging, you have to engage the kids. If the kids are engaged, the parents will be relaxed. Right. If the parents are relaxed, they're going to be open to hearing and learning things. Yes. And if those two generations are set, the grandparents will be happy to go along with whatever there is, even if they can't participate because of their age and physical limitations. They'll sit on the bus joyfully shepenachas from the fact that they're yeah. there, there are kids and grandchildren enjoying something. So you might take them, if you want a funky place, you might take them what they call spelunking. You'll take them to crawl through caves, uh, something called the Bar Kochva Caves in the south of Israel, where you're exploring on your hands and knees, literally, the experience of people hiding out from the Romans in earlier periods from the Greeks and trying to find ways to defend themselves, protect their culture. You know, we're, we're very close to Hanukkah, yes. so that kind of story is very uh, relevant. And when you can try to understand and, and physically experience what some of these people did 2,000 years ago, it really gives you a sense of connection with not just the story, but with the geography, with the with the land itself. Did you go on your hands and knees? Absolutely. You can't, with, you're not going to do. You're, no one. No one's going to do it if you don't do it. No padding on your knees. Foolishly, no. No, that, you're right. Because I'm thinking about hockey. I'm thinking about, you know, like when I clean the floor here, I just can't go down on my knees. It hurts too much. But so you're crawling through these with boobies and zadies and grandchildren, uh, those depending who, those who can make it. Depending, yeah. right? Yeah. And do you ever get claustrophobic? Uh, fortunately not. I would have great uh, difficulty in, in going to some of the places I did if I had claustrophobia. And the people you took through, did you anyone... Warn them. You warn them in advance. doesn't mean that they're aware of their claustrophobia. So sometimes you'd get... I remember once we were in a very narrow tunnel uh, on a much earlier trip. This is in the, the uh, water tunnel of Chizkiyahu in Jerusalem, where you're walking underground in stone sculpted tunnel yeah. for quite a while you can be there for about an hour yeah and there's a part where you have to 
bend over to get through, walking through water. So if you're claustrophobic and you didn't know it before, you're in big trouble. And I remember getting held up for about 15 minutes because somebody just wouldn't move. They refused to move. Yeah. They froze. They freaked out. What'd you do? And that's part of the fun of being a field, yes. field educator. Sounds like you got to educate yourself how to cope with those situations. Well, what did you do? You try to you make sure they have a flashlight because darkness is usually the thing that uh, accelerates the the situation worst. Or uh, so you separate them from the rest of the people, or at least from one person they're comfortable with. This is what we did with that particular person. Uh, it was a girl. We made sure her mother was with her. We got the rest of the group sufficiently behind so they didn't feel the crowd. Uh, took out the flashlight, started talking with her a little bit about uh, things she does that she enjoys. Oh, took yeah, about good 15 one. minutes to, to calm her down. And good then one. we got her and her mother out and then the rest of the group. But that took 15 minutes. And that, for the rest of the group, was no pleasure either. The no, water's cold. Could... And even in the middle of the summer, your feet start freezing. Where, where might have you gone in the desert with a group? Uh, in Israel... If you ask me what I miss most about Israel yeah. geographically, no question, the desert. Why is that? Why, the why is that? The desert is a place where, firstly, everything's exposed. Yeah. And when everything's exposed, you feel exposed. And the beauty that I always felt in the desert is beyond being physically exposed, you can allow yourself to be exposed in other ways as well in terms of allowing yourself to be open, as the desert is, about things, about thoughts, discussion. An open heart. An open heart that you might not have been willing to do in other places, that you're uh, perhaps confined from doing it in the city where there's too much clutter around you, whether it be uh, people or other things or distractions. In the desert, you have the opportunity to delve into things that you just won't do. Like what? Uh, you know, talk about meditation. So meditation is something that you have the opportunity to close yourself off from the outside world wherever you are. In the desert, you don't need meditation because you are you're already in a state and in a physical environment where that meditation is 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 the default. It's a meditative environment. It's, you're you're there already. You don't need to make a, any great effort. Uh, so whether you're with a group or on your own. There, the desert really offers opportunity for, for thought uh, that, that you don't have in other places. And I, I think some of the most rewarding experiences I had were with, not so much with tourists in the desert, but because for them it's a bit of a, a novelty, they're not going to be there again, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. more with, uh, as, I, as I worked for quite a few years with high school students, taking them on their annual trips to the desert. So when you're working with a group of 14 or 15-year-olds uh, who have all sorts of other things on their minds at that age, and when you can take a group of 15 kids, because you don't really usually guide more than 15, 20 kids at the most, yeah. you can get them to sit down, spread out, each find a, a place off in the sand, by a rock, by some dried-out bush that... Uh, you, you wouldn't think twice about it if you'd seen it uh, anywhere else. And to get them sit there for 15, 20 minutes without making a sound, mm -hmm. no cell phones, no contact with anyone else, whatever they think about, it doesn't matter what they think about, just getting them to isolate themselves for that period of time, which you can't do anywhere else, yeah. is a wonderful feeling. What, what, what were the Bedouins like? My experience was very positive. 
I mean, there, there's, there are a lot of political issues and social issues with, with the Bedouins, but my experience in terms of tourism and engagement between them and their culture and the groups that I worked with, whether youth or otherwise, was a very positive one. But, of course, when, you, when you're working on, an, on a tourist basis, uh, there's only so much that you can consider genuine. You know, they're trying to present perhaps a hopefully not too stereotypical cultural image, but if you really want to get to know that culture, it's not just a matter of sitting having a khafla and eating with your fingers, uh, dipping them into food and whatever. A khafla being? A khafla being a, a meal, a Bedouin meal where you, the food is all spread out, no plates, no cutlery, everybody's sitting around a table, they're sharing, uh, poking their fingers into the same food. Yeah. So obviously for a lot of North American tourists, that was uh, anathema. Is your soul in Israel? Is your heart and soul in there? Part of it. Part yeah. Of it, yeah. The Huda Levi uh, tradition. Do you miss it? Very much. Very much. Do you see yourself going back? I see myself going back on visits for an extended time. I'll admit, sadly, not to live there. Yeah. I've, I've had a significant and, and very relevant portion of my life spent in Israel with incredible experiences, fantastic people that I met there. Uh, but that's, that's a part of my, my past and uh, now my, my, my place, my role, my environment is, some, is something different now and I, and I accept that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing about being our age. There's a lot of acceptance I find that happens within me. I'm infinitely more patient. I like to think I'm a bit more wise than I was. I can discern things much better than I used to. Uh, it's 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 not a bad place to be in life. Would you agree with that? Yes. The I agree with you. Sometimes my patience isn't the same as it was in the past, but at the same time I think my ability and willingness to draw on experience and relevant relevant experience to understand, to deal with different situations is vastly better than it was before. Right, that's right. Rather and than working only on, on intuition and uh, you know, gut, it's, it's, it's very satisfying, I think in the long term, for most situations, where you can uh, draw on that type of experience. Who, who's easier? Who, who are you more patient with, the bar or bat mitzvah kids or their parents? It's a tough call. Uh, sometimes the parents can be much bigger pains than the kids themselves. <laughs> right, I, thought... I, I don't know which of the parents might hear this, but I'm sure they'll forgive me. Uh, but just today, I, I, I got an email from uh, a parent uh, who's daughter's bat mitzvah took place this past uh, Motzei Shabbat and she talked about the process that we went through both with the bat mitzvah herself and with the mother yeah. and with me and finding a modus operandi uh, starting from a very awkward initial point but getting to a place where everybody felt completely rewarded by what the, the bat mitzvah was able to accomplish yes. and that, those, those are some of the most rewarding moments the, the event itself but the awareness and the acknowledgement by the by the parents afterwards that something meaningful has happened in both their and their and their child's life i had a woman come up to me the other day i was in a public environment um and she said 
I was at a bar mitzvah, actually, and she was very boisterous and very excited. And she said, you named my granddaughter. And I did some work at Congregation Habonim. Mm -hmm. Ellie Rubenstein is the spiritual leader there. Ellie was a guest on High Radio. And indeed, I did name her granddaughter. And I've always carried that with me because you have the sense, or one has a sense as a community leader, a community worker, that they're part and parcel of those families, right? Incredibly part and parcel. And I'll just, I'll share a similar experience that I had recently, a series of experiences. So uh, my father, to make a long story short, had a couple of business partners. One of those, the two partners, they all had, the three of them had cottages together up north. Where, whereabouts? Uh, Lake of Bays. Okay. So we spent hours together as kids uh, with the families there. Uh, everybody kind of went their own way over the years, but the my father's partners both belonged to our shul, yeah. and I had the great privilege in doing a baby naming for the partner's granddaughters or great granddaughter, the granddaughter's uh, baby naming years ago, and then prepared that same young girl for her bat mitzvah uh, just beautiful. last year. Beautiful and. In, on a sadder note, but not one that's tragic in any way, because the rabbi happened to be away that week, I also uh, conducted the funeral for the, the grandfather, my father's partner. Yeah. And that ability to be involved in all those significant life cycle events for the same family is incredibly powerful. It is. And it gives, not just me, I mean, but the family itself, so it gives them a sense of, of something that has continuity and and meaning because when they see all these different events both sad and joyous ones having a, a, a common element outside their family somebody that they've known for so many years it makes all those events all the more uh, significant and powerful on either end of the the joy spectrum rabbi shime is your colleague he's the yes. spiritual leader at beth david marshall is the cantor so you have a beautiful team there and you go on the internet betdavid.com or whatever the url is do you know what it is for your uh, shul? BetDavid.com. It is BetDavid.com. Yeah. Uh, yeah, people speak very highly of your team. I once asked Rabbi Scheim, how many people have you buried? And do you have the sense that sort of these ghosts are following you? He said, yeah, I think the number he gave me was somewhere in the area of 2,000 people. And he says, yeah, you always have the sense that they're kind of with you. When you did the funeral for your father's partner, firstly, was he at the funeral, your father? Because he's, he's in his 90s, right? Yeah, my father was at the funeral. Uh, actually, my mother was as well. That was before my, my mother passed away five years ago. And my dad said to me afterwards, he didn't say it directly to me. He said it to one of my siblings. He says, I just hope when I go that he'll, he'll give me that kind of eulogy as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but you know what? preparing a eulogy can be an incredibly daunting thing if you don't know the person. But when you know the person, I won't say it's easy, but all you need to do is find one thing to connect with that that person that everybody in that family knows and they know that you know. And when you do that, you've, you've done something for them that's going to make that passing event something that is, is manageable it's and can be coped true. with. It's it, so powerful when you, you, can, when you, you can find that. That's in life 
and death. Like when I go to my sisters as an example on Shabbat and we're sitting around the table, that's one of the things that's sort of a technique I guess we have as community leaders is you pick something of that person or of that family, which they themselves, you know, they embrace it. It could be uh, the craziness around the table. It could be the humor. It could be a memory that happened years and years ago. We have so many memories of my mother sitting with us at the Passover Seder at my sister's house, you know, and making funny comments and so on. When you elicit that stuff, you're right. It brings people together and they feel like they're at home through your words. I'm not, uh, as you said before, I'm not comfortable being, being the center of attention. I'm also not comfortable talking about myself. Yeah. One thing I know about myself that I do well is I'm patient and I listen to people. And I think, as you said, when you're able to listen and elicit from them something that's, that's important for them rather than th- trying to think what you think might be important for them, that, that's, that's the most crucial part of that process. And I, I remember one of the things I said at, the, at, the, at his funeral, and because my, I'm convinced that at any Jewish life cycle event, well, any, that, and that's a tautology, any life cycle event is a Jewish event. Yes. So at any one of those events, my role as a ritual director, as an educator, is to try to offer something that allows them to connect meaningfully and relevantly to our tradition. And so I remember one of the things I said was, you're familiar with the, from Kiddushin 29, I think it is, where you talk about what's a father's duty to his child. And I certainly expand that today to parent, uh, father to a son. I expand that to parent to a child. What does it say? We should say this is in the Talmud, which is called Kiddushin, Kiddushin. right? One of the, the father needs to provide the son with, a circumcision, pidyon ben, the redemption of the eldest son, if that's relevant, needs to provide, teach him Torah, needs to provide him with a wife and a trade, and as an added comment, it says, and some say you should teach him how to swim. How to swim, that's how right. Swim. Yeah. And the person, my father's partner that passed away was an outdoor enthusiast. Yeah. He water skied until he could no longer water ski, when he shouldn't have been water skiing. Yeah. And water activities were so important for him. And to use that connection with our tradition for that family was that all you needed to do. Yes. That put them in touch with their, with their Jewish identity and it put them in touch, so in touch with their father. And their father certainly was somebody who was very connected to uh, ritual and, and Jewish peoplehood and Israel, of course, and educational institutions. Uh, so it was kind of an easy thing to do, an easy connection to make. And the family appreciated that kind of thing. And, and that's what we need to do as educators, as, as, as leaders, community leaders. We need to find ways to allow people to connect their personal experience with what Judaism and our tradition has to offer. And the opportunities for that are immeasurable if we're willing to look. Yeah, I, 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 might, I might adjust that ever so subtly. I might say that your job as an educator, again, as a community worker and leader, is to connect someone with themselves and thereby connecting them with Torah, the Jewish culture, and so on. But don't you find that a very positive and effective technique as a teacher is to point something out to the child about themselves that they may not have thought about or nobody had really mentioned it. So one of the first things I do when I 
meet with my B'nai Mitzvah students is we kind of set rules, and this is always with the parents there in the room. Yeah. So we talk about, you know, how do you know what to do during a day? How do you know what's important to you? You, you ever think about that? And he says, I don't know. You know the way uh, kids answer. They grunt. They grunt. The guys, if, the guys if, grunt. If, if you're lucky. If, if you're, you're lucky. lucky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I say to them, how do you know what's important to you? You make a list. Do you have an idea of what that is? Are you, if I were to ask you, and I, this is a uh, task I give them, put down the five things that are most important to you in your life right now. You know, and sometimes I ask them to do it on the spot. Usually I give them as, as an assignment. Uh, because I'm trying to impress upon them, if you don't know, if you're not thinking regularly about what's important to you and what you need to do, even at age 12 or 11, I don't care how old you are, yes. uh, you're not going to get to it. You're not going to know. You're not going to be sufficiently aware. I may not use these words because this might be a bit tougher in 11 or 12 year old to, to grasp like that. But I tell them, you've got to make yourself aware of what's important to you. And this year, preparing for your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah celebration is important to you. And it may not always be the most important thing to you, but you need to keep on your list things that are going to be important to you. And I pull out a list because I'm a, a list. You're a list Let's guy. call it enthusiast. I'll, I'll, <laughs> oh, I'll be, are you? I'll be kind to myself. That's exciting. Uh, so I show them this list of things. This Look, this is what I have to do today. Everything that's checked off is what I managed to get yeah. through. So I show yeah. them a list up closely, and this is in the evening. How many of those things are checked off? So they look at it. Well, you got about, what, you got 30 things on that list? I said, well, about six of them. Right. So you think I get to everything every day? No. Right. But if I don't put them down, I'm not going to get to them ever. And same thing is what you need to do with, with your priorities for the coming year. I want you to put down on the list what you need to do. And part of becoming bar bat mitzvah, as part of that status, is to have an understanding of what you need to do with regards to that status. Yes. If you're going to take it seriously. If you're not going to take it seriously, I can't, I can't really suggest a whole lot. But if you do, you need to put that exploration of your Jewish identity on your list of things to do. Now, I don't care if it's number 50 of 50. But if you want to do something with it, you've got to keep it on that list. The moment it comes up that list, the only thing it's going to put back is some dramatic or traumatic experience. And I can't tell you how many, and this is with parents in the room, I can't tell you how many people have only had an opportunity to re-explore what Jewish experience and tradition has to offer after they've suffered death in their family. Kids are beautiful, aren't they? And kids, we need to give them a lot more credit than we do. How, how so? How so? We assume that they can't handle, they can't manage certain concepts and ideas. And I'm always surprised, although I should know better by now, yeah. by how able kids are when it comes to understanding things if you speak to them in an intelligent manner don't treat them like little kids treat them like adults who aren't quite there yet but want to know like what yesterday we had i had a we have a hebrew school in the evening at, at beth david on monday evenings so one of the teachers wasn't there and uh, she left an assignment dealing with hanukkah yeah. so we worked on a couple of word searches with a group of kids who were in grades five and six. And I said to them, as they started, you know, no rules, just do it the best you can. Whoever finishes first, that'll be a great thing. 
So then about halfway <laughs> through, halfway through, I told them, we want to see a bit of a film afterwards. And in order to see that film, everybody needs to finish. So one kid, after about a few minutes, raised it, I'm finished, I'm finished. So can we see the film? And he looked at me. And he realized, no, we're not seeing the film till everybody's finished. Right. So he went around, shared his answers with the others. <laughs> That's great. And in a, a couple of minutes later, everybody had finished that. Um, so sometimes we don't allow kids to act responsibly. We give them yeah. the opportunity to act like, like jerks, like irresponsible people when there's nothing wrong with uh, forcing them to act responsibly at an early age. You don't have to become bar bat mitzvah in order to be a responsible person. And that's I completely agree with you. I mean, one of the lessons we can take out of Janusz Korczak, mm -hmm. and we talked about Janusz Korczak on this show with Erwin Elman, who was the uh, province's, uh, really he was responsible for all the children in the, in, in the province. And his model for working with children was Janusz Korczak, who started an orphanage up in Poland as the war was about to start a little bit before in the 30s. And basically it was a whole, it was governed like a city or a country would be governed. And the children, regardless of their age, were responsible for the orphanage. So there was a mayor, you know, there was a budgeting kid, you know, they were all, they all had tasks. Mm -hmm. And if someone stepped out of line Similarly to if we're speeding and we go through a red light, uh, that that child will be punished by the court and the judge was a child or children. So Korczak was really, really big in that. Read about Korczak if you're listening because Janusz Korczak is considered really the father of uh, of teaching teaching us and teaching children about responsibility, right? Now, Lord of the Flies notwithstanding. Notwithstanding, I, yeah. I think that we like Anish Korchak, need to give kids a more benefit of the doubt than we do. Yeah. Without a doubt. So I want to go back to Israel. Let's, mm -hmm. let's fly back over so there. So do I, at least for a visit. Yeah, at least for a visit, right? So you were a hockey player here in Toronto. You made Aliyah, literally, which means to go up. You moved to Israel, and you continued in hockey. Um, and, and you actually were – you work with the team – that went to Europe and played in some tournaments. By the way, I had on the show a few weeks ago uh, Jeff Budd. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. Jeff okay. worked with the uh, sure. with the Israel national yeah. team as yeah. well. So, firstly, I, I need your take on this because I I know you're modest, but just give me the goods here, okay? D you must have loved hockey, right? Because you developed your skills. You were there's not a lot of great Jewish hockey players. You were really great. Well, I th I think uh... just try not to be modest for a second. It's, believe me, it's not it's not out of modesty. So when you when you say I was a hockey player in Canada in Toronto before I left there, I played hockey. I tried to play hockey in Canada. Yeah. I, the thing is, whenever you consider a skill or a talent, it has to be taken with perspective, and and you can't help but take it in comparison. So in Canada, I played hockey because everybody plays hockey. Everybody I was is. okay. I was a decent player. Yeah. When you get to a place like Israel, where there aren't a lot of <laughs> hockey players. You can't help but stand out if you had some experience uh, playing at, at, at whatever level you may have played. Uh, so I remember, I, can't, I think it was 1989, about four years after I'd been in Israel, I heard that there was a rink in Ramat Gan. Mm -hmm. And 
I went down there. I drove down on my motorcycle. What kind I of had, bike? What kind of bike? Suzuki GR650. It was a 650? 650, yeah. Oh, it was a racing bike. Well, no, not a racing bike. No, it's it's like in the um, Harley Davidson style. Oh, like a touring bike. Okay. Touring bike. Touring yeah. bike, yeah. Uh, anyway, I drove down there, I remember, and didn't have skates with me, of course, so I rented a pair of skates, and this Rink and Ramat gun was the strangest thing. It had this piece, this triangular shape sticking out into the <laughs> side of the rink, so you couldn't do a full circle of the rink. You had to go around it. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, Israelis are great with obstacles, so it was fine. Right. But uh, I remember the guy who ran the rink, he saw me skating, and he saw that uh, you know, my, my skills are maybe a little different than the neophyte Israelis struggling to keep their balance. So he asked me, you know, have you ever played hockey before? He says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. So he asked me, well, and when he found that I was from Canada, he said, well, why don't you come down next week? Uh, we've got guys practicing next week who play hockey. Yeah. And so I came down, and uh, you know, that's that's really the beginning of my involvement with with hockey in Israel. I, it's the last thing I would have thought I'd be doing in Israel. I'm like, sure most hockey. people, yeah. I took no equipment with me, obviously. Right. Uh, but to make a long story short, things uh, developed. There was uh, a good core of people, a good friend of mine, Paul Shinman, among others, who had the chutzpah to actually consider getting Israel registered with the IIHF uh, as a legitimate hockey country and then getting them into a qualifying tournament for the next world championship at the appropriate level. I think it was C2 at the time. Uh, that was a tier. That was like the Those third were tier. Tiers. Yeah, the third tier. And IIHF is the International Hockey Federation, right? Right. Yes. Right. So they managed to succeed at that. They got Israel registered. We had uh, a qualifying tournament of all places in Turkey mm -hmm. and the countries participating were Greece, Turkey, and of course, Israel. And I remember when I heard of the teams participating, I think Turkey and yeah, Greece right, right. playing in the same tournament. It's like are they you, have great are food. Are you kidding? <laughs> great you kidding? food, but you know. Yeah, it's like having North and South Korea try to play together. Yeah, right. But to their credit, the, the games were nothing like that. In terms of the, all the players from the three countries were out to have a good time uh, and to take hockey as seriously as possible. Um, and putting together a team, a few Israelis, some Canadians, uh, Russians. a number of Russians who had just started coming in the, the mass immigration from the former Soviet Union back in the early 90s, uh, was a phenomenal experience because you've got people coming from very different Jewish, philosophical, social backgrounds, completely different, I, I would not hesitate to say, and to try to find something beyond the hockey element that they had in common yeah. was the biggest challenge. They ate different things. And when you're traveling with a team, you have to find a menu that works as well. Right. Uh, and I recall trying to find, I wasn't in charge of that because I was, I was playing, but we had a couple of people who's uh, a husband and wife team who were responsible together with Paul for the logistics, ordering food for a training camp we had in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. This is just after the Iron Curtain came down. So you're going through a country that has nothing on the shelves. You go into a grocery store, uh, supermarket, about a tenth of the, the shelves had something on them. And trying to find something that answers the needs for a, a team training. Wow. Uh, in any case, uh, the, 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 the training camp in, in, in Sofia was amazing. 
And then we had a 20-hour bus ride from Sofia to Ankara. How was that? How was that? Oh, that was that, driving through the Turkish countryside, stopping in Istanbul, of course, for a little tourism on the way, was an amazing experience. And perhaps the most building experience yeah. of the whole thing. I would because imagine. Because when you're in a, I guess, call it a flea bag hotel that we were in, in, in Bulgaria, because yeah. there wasn't much else there. Uh, at least the, with, with our budget, regardless of what the situation was there. Everybody's got their own room. You get together for practices, for meals, but everybody's doing their own thing. But when you're stuck on a bus for 20 hours yeah. with the same group, there's no escape, nowhere to go. There's only complaining. Uh, there's, o- <laughs> there's only uh, attempts at coping. I think that allowed us to gel more than anything else. And I think by the time we got to the, the tournament in Ankara, we were a team. We were a team, as much as you can say we were a team at that time. And... Uh, uh, and that first experience of playing against another country, yeah, how was representing that? Israel, can't describe it. Unless you've represented a country, and specifically Israel, if you've ever represented Israel in any kind of competition, in any kind of sports tournament, if you haven't gone through that, it's it's impossible to, to describe what it feels like. What was that like? Well, put, first of all, putting on a sweater that says Israel on it. Yeah. Uh, and representing a country in hockey, whereas a Canadian... That's something that only the elite will ever experience in their lives. And here I am, this this Nebuch hockey player, Not quite, Jewish hockey okay. player from yeah. Toronto, yeah. Re- representing <laughs> Israel in an international uh, ice hockey tournament. It's hard to describe. It's just it's just phenomenal. It's unique. And to top it off, to hear Hatikva yeah, played is... after you win a game, it, and everybody's standing still, uh, you know, both opposing teams standing on the lines. And, and playing Hatikva, it's just overwhelming. Does it does it speak to the 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 na- sort of your national feelings? Does it speak to your love, your upbringing on Judaism and Torah? What is like one thing that happens inside of you when you're hearing Hatikva? Like what the imagery that goes through your mind? So I think the automatic, the first imagery, I think, and perhaps it's unavoidable. Maybe for our generation, for the, the, the generations, the younger generations, I would say not so much. But certainly for our generation and our parents' generation, when you think of young people playing a sport internationally, representing Israel, you can't help but think of the Munich Olympics, the Shoah, and the fact that after all that, here the Shoah is being the, Holocaust. the Shoah being the Holocaust, the fact that here is a country being represented internationally in the most unlikely of sports, uh, certainly at that time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But here on, on the world stage, literally, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's the lowest tier of the IIHF. <laughs> that doesn't make a difference. Here you are f- competing against other countries uh, where back then, at least only a couple generations before, that would have been completely unimaginable, uh, competing in a sports tournament internationally, let alone being alive and having a, a country such as Israel. So uh, the the I think that that's what f- went through me that first time I heard the anthem. And of course, shortly after that, you're thinking of modern Israel and what Israel's accomplished. But th- those were definitely the first images I had in my mind, thinking of the Holocaust. And here we are today. That was back in 1992, so what is it, 47 years after the end of the Second World War. Here we are today, playing in a, uh, with countries around the world in hockey, ice hockey, of all things. What was it like upon your return to Israel? Were you showered with gratitude and gifts and hugs? 
we'd like to believe we we should have been but <laughs> ice hockey was not a, a major sport in israel as it isn't today of course right and i think most people despite that had never still never heard of ice hockey they, they, they didn't have a clue so when we came back it wasn't as if there were hundreds or thousands of people waiting at the airport to shower us and cheer us on as as you know, we didn't win the tournament or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. Uh, <laughs> but even that, in terms of welcoming us back after having represented Israel, no, that didn't happen. And there are very few places where people had even, were even familiar with yeah. ice hockey and certainly that, that Israel was participating. But to be honest, that didn't take away from what we felt in terms of uh, having accomplished something, putting a team together and competing. Uh, the sense of that identification with Israel, with, with Jewish peoplehood, with history, varied, of course, among the Israelis, the Canadians, the, the Russians. It was different for everybody. I can't say it was the same. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dare really to say what the Russians were thinking. I think perhaps their connection might have been somewhat other than ours. Uh, I think their arrival in Israel and their sense of connectedness to Jewish history and Israel at, certainly at that time, shortly after some of them had arrived, was not what it would have been for somebody in my position who grew up all his life hearing about Israel, being Zionist uh, through the family and through schools, and having an understanding of, of Jewish history. And yeah, it must have registered differently very with different, a different place. Very different. What, what I find very compelling is as follows. Uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago at York University, uh, there was this very unfortunate incident that happened with a lot of uh, supporters, I guess they would say supporters of what's uh, happening in the Middle East, having to do with the Palestinians in Israel, came out and really terrorized the few Jews who had come, who were attending a lecture. Uh, it was real scary for a lot of them and they needed security to get out of there. Today I was looking online on Facebook and uh, there was a poster that has gone up at York University, which is the Israeli flag next to the Palestinian flag. And obviously the comments were, this is infinitely better. This is going to bring us closer to peace and that type of thing. One of the things I find beautiful about the hockey experience in Israel and we should add that in the northern part of the country, uh, there is what's called the Canada Center in Metula. And that was uh, really donated or underwritten mostly by people here in Toronto mm -hmm. and in Ontario and Canada. But there, there are a lot of Arab kids who join in and they are part of a league and part of games with Israeli kids. One of the kids said, they asked them, so how do you feel about this? This must be wonderful in terms of unity, working together with Jewish kids. He goes, you know what, man? I don't even think about that. I just come out. I want to play hockey. And I think that's the place we need to get to. Well, what, what's your take on that? Well, I think any activity like that where you're trying to foster goodwill and mutual participation yeah. between different groups of different backgrounds you can't focus on political dialogue. That's that that's that's not that's that's not constructive at that point. Because what they have in common is their love of sport, if it's we're talking about hockey or whatever sport, and that's what you need to focus on. Once they can appreciate each other as fellow hockey players, whatever their contribution to the team, to the to the skill development, only then can you dare talk about other issues. But if if you start with this, uh, 
with the goal of coming to some kind of understanding on a political and social and economic basis between people from different backgrounds, whether it be Israelis and Palestinians, whether it be secular and ultra-Orthodox, whatever the polarities you're trying to bring together, it's got to be on what they have in common. Uh, and, and, and hockey is a great way of doing that. Very much, yeah. I have one interesting experience of hockey in Canada. I recall that when I was playing with a friend of mine back in his grade 10, 11, he'd convinced me to, to, to try out for a team with him. He'd been playing for a number of years. And I went along and I managed to, to be accepted to the team. But at the time, both of us wore a kippah. Mm -hmm. And the people who played on this team were far from those who had any connection, let alone familiarity, with, with, uh, with Jews or anything Jewish. So they looked at us a little bit strangely. But the goalie was, my friend who was a goaltender, he was an excellent goaltender. So they respected him for that. Uh, I was not bad, but they came to, I think, respect me for the effort I made on the ice, if not the, you tried. If not the execution yeah. so much. Uh, but I recall after about half the season, uh, there was one guy in the team, and I'll say his name because he'll never hear this, and if he does, actually, I'd be, I'd be very pleased. His name was Ray. Long hair, uh, and as stereotypical a comment as it is, he's the person who looked least Jewish that you could ever, right. <laughs> ever imagine. Right. Right. Um, but we came, we played against a team, and some once somebody on that other team made some comment about the kikes on our team. And this guy, Ray, the last thing I would have expected him to do was to give two hoots about that comment. Yeah. But he went up to this guy and he just knocked him right over. Did he really? And, you know, he knocked I, him out? I can't say that my preferred course of action is to resort to uh, you know, physical action when, you, when you're called names. But it was so powerful that despite the fact that Ray knew nothing about Judaism, other than the fact that these two guys on his teams wear a kippah. And he didn't even know what that was. Uh, but the fact that they were part of a team on which he played, he owed them an allegiance. They were part of something that was important to him. And he wasn't going to let anyone else uh, come between us. And that was, that was one of the more powerful uh, experiences I had in terms of the importance of finding things that people have in common rather than trying to talk about things uh, that bring them apart. And, and hockey, in that example, and in the one you mentioned about uh, involving Arabs, Palestinians in hockey in Israel as well, that's, that's the goal. And, and, and it's, it has great potential, not just in sports, of course. Yeah, I, I believe it does as well. And one of the things that I try to speak about as often as possible is knowing who our friends are as Jews. It's really important that we don't label and over-label uh, anti-Semites or anti-Semitism. That's very, very important. There are a lot of rays out there, rays of light and human beings, you know, like Ray. Absolutely. I know because yeah. I've met them, because I've hung out with them, because they're part of my life. They're decent human beings who either like the Jewish people, perhaps love the Jewish people, but are highly supportive of who we are and very, very deeply offended by anti-Semitism. I agree with that completely. And uh, we need to get more people on our side, on our side in the sense, not in terms of a conflict we have with others, on our side in terms of understanding who we are and what we're about. And I'm absolutely convinced, despite what sometimes the evidence seems to show, people are curious. 
people want to know. Yeah. And we don't, as we do often sometimes with children, we don't often give them the credit for wanting to know. We assume that they choose to be ignorant and they want to remain in that ignorance. And that's not true. That's not true. We're doing ourselves and everyone else a disservice by not feeding into people's inherent and natural curiosity. Does your work at Pet David involve outreach or working together with non-Jews at all? In the, in the last number of years, we've, we've tried to make a, a, a real effort in that area. And one of the things we've been working on the, the last two years is a new, what we call a teen tikkun olam program for yeah. kids who have celebrated becoming barred bat mitzvah in the last year. And that program seeks to give them a better understanding, in addition to what we did when they were in the bar mitzvah training period, of the Jewish community, try to see them what the general community is like. Uh, so we want them to meet and we have some meetings coming up with the indigenous community in Toronto, with the Christian community, with the Muslim community. That's great. And we were fortunate to participate last year when that when there was that uh, attack. Uh, we were invited to come to uh, a mosque in uh, in Markham, and and join together with them uh, in terms of trying to come to better understanding between people. We've since maintained that connection, and I'm hoping that that will be where these kids go. Yeah, I, meet, I with, meet with some young kids at uh, that mosque as well. That's very good. I did something similar whereby we uh, surrounded the mosque holding hands and praying together right. with them. We were at one of those. Yeah. yeah, people who are critical of that are critical of it. You know, the, you know you're going to have that amongst any people. You know, the, the sentiment being, well, there are Muslims and all Muslims hate Jews. Okay, well, that was not my experience. Mm -hmm. I went up there and I spoke. There must have been a thousand people at that mosque. And they listened very attentively. And they asked me questions later on, as well as the individuals whom I was with, many of whom came from Via Hafta. And I think you're dead on, Michael, when you say we have to build upon that. We have to reach out. We have to make friends because they are there and they want to be friends. And sometimes we just don't see it. We don't see it because uh, we're not looking for it often. We, we don't uh, we don't seek out that that kind of dialogue and opportunities to to engage with people that are that are different from us. Look, I, I see it in my congregation. There's an interest in learning, uh, and people are curious about Jewish texts, etc. Sometimes it's a little bit more of a challenge to get them interested and focus on something outside the circle, outside yeah. the walls of the synagogue, outside the confines of the Jewish community. Uh, I recently went to a, a panel discussion on uh, the situation of, of Muslim women here in Toronto. Uh, and, and to talk about abuse of Muslim women by reason of incorrect or interpretation of certain verses in the Quran. And I was very impressed by the, the people that came out. It was a very small group of people came out. There were about 20 people, uh, four men. I was one of those four. Yeah. And, but there was an imama of, of the women's mosque in Toronto who spoke about the situation. And they talked about the fact that... Uh, they're trying to do something which is express their get out in the open to let people know about a situation that often and we have similar uh, comparable situations in the Jewish community where there's certain uh, conditions that we're not willing to talk about. It's as if certain things don't happen. And this idea of being open and sharing troubling conditions within a, a faith group or within a community 
are something that takes a lot of courage to right. do. Right. And there are elements in the Jewish community that have started to do this as well, whether it be women's groups or other types of groups. And part of being able to find something in common with other uh, communities is to, to be open enough and exposing ourselves about some of the troubles and the, and, the, and the challenges that we face in our own community, because then there's a greater opportunity for dialogue in finding things that we have in common. Not just what's great about our communities, but what's challenging in our communities. Well, what I found very interesting was that Rabbi Shine was somewhat groundbreaking in terms of taking Beth David Synagogue together with yourself and Marshall and the board of directors into an egalitarian environment. Now, I grew up in an Orthodox environment, and over the years, I've moved away from that, so I've become used to women's participation, but still, there is a little bit of from inside of me, a little bit of Orthodox inside of me, and there I am, sitting... Well, you're saying from can't be egalitarian? Uh, uh, no, actually, it can be, but I'm talking about the old from. The old from. Yeah, okay. I grew up okay. in the old from, right? Okay. I'm a bit of a dinosaur that way. So, But uh, here I am, sitting in Beth David at a service. We're all sitting together. The women are called up to the Torah. And really, one of the greatest uh, experiences that I had at Yershul was when a woman of probably about 86 years old was called up and she decided that she was going to challenge herself to read the Torah. Did you teach her that? Did you mm -hmm. work with her? She not was, only, was I right about her age, by the way? Yeah. Somewhere in that area, right? Yeah. Yeah. So not only did she learn to read the Torah, she learned to lead Mincha and Mariv as well. Which is the afternoon and the night yeah. services. And she's been a... a a ray of light to the congregation in terms of not not just terms of egalitarianism, but in terms of uh, encouraging people who may feel that at their age yeah. they can't take on and learn a new skill, and that's as powerful, if not more, than the egalitarian aspect of it. Because so many people tell me at a young at a young age that they no longer have the ability. When a parent of a bar bat mitzvah student tells me, "Oh, I'm too old for that. I can't learn that," and they're 45, yeah, uh, I mention. This woman, uh, Gita, yeah. uh, who phenomenal lady, and it's it's a source of inspiration for people in our in our congregation. But but that that willingness to to kind of step out of what you're used to, because uh, she came from a traditional background as well. It was very difficult for her for a number of reasons to do that. Uh, but but she felt that it's something that allowed her uh, to continue to be engaged in a congregation. Uh, that that was changing. Well, one of the things that you and I are exposed to um, at Beth David is uh, it's it's the older folks, and it is an aging community. That's something you guys have to work on, and I know that you're conscious of it and and are working on it. But I find seniors fascinating, and there's an individual who attends the morning services. His name is Lionel, and Lionel's probably about 83 right now. He's a loquacious, very talkative, knows a lot about Torah, gives classes on Torah, very eclectic in nature, very wise, and I, and he's my friend. Mm -hmm. So I was with him last time when I came from my father's yurtzeit, which is the memorial date of his death. And so Lionel says, yeah, things are going okay. You know, I'm playing my guitar. <laughs> I said, what? He says, oh, yeah, yeah, I started playing guitar. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no. I said, let me see your hands because I play a little guitar myself and I know what's required. Okay, yeah, you got nice fingers, long enough. But what I was really fascinated by was exactly what you just said. 83 years old, he decided to take up the guitar, and he did, and he was loving it. He wasn't afraid to do it. 
we've got another, I've got another example of this. There's a gentleman in our congregation, Max, who dovens, he reads Torah regularly, and he recently took up painting, yeah. acrylic painting, and he's painting, not originally, he's painting copies of famous paintings. So he's brought in stuff by Pizarro and Manet and you wouldn't, and Van Gogh, you wouldn't believe the really? quality. Oh, phenomenal. He's brought them in. He even had a little exhibition in the shul recently. The, his work is tremendous. And he goes to, he says he does it in a day or two. Wow. Ma- we're, Max we're, the boxer? He used to be a boxer when he was, how old yeah, that's is That's right. That's right. He's, he's, nine, he's over 90. Oh, he's a strong, big amazing man. Guy. Yeah, yeah. Amazing guy. Yeah. Amazing guy. Yeah. You must feel so deeply honored to be part of that, don't you? All these people, peoples over the years that you have met and interacted with, what, what an honor. That's a good word for it. Yeah. It really is, because you have an opportunity to, to play a role in, in people's lives, uh, not just in the synagogue ritual activities, but in, in, in life cycle events and in, in, in helping to encourage them to do things that they didn't think they could do, to do new things, uh, to continue with things that they thought they can no longer do. But also to, to lend them an ear because they've got great stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, this talk, we, we, we began the show about with, with children. You talked about Janusz Korczak. Uh, this morning I had a conversation with uh, a woman who survived the Shoah. Five years she was in different camps, uh, beginning at age nine. And she schleps out with her husband, uh, and they're both uh, 90, uh, almost every day. To the, come to the minyan at, at eight o'clock to the morning service at eight in the morning. Fabulous. And she, you know, she quetches a little bit about it. You know, so, <laughs> you know, he drags Isaac. He drags me out here every morning. He needs to come. And but it's beautiful the fact that they still want to come. They feel uh, some type of fulfillment in making it out to the minyan every day. She talked. You know, she talked about her past this morning. I hadn't heard her talk for a while about it. But it, it's clear to me that part of her urgency. And relevance for coming to the services in the morning are because of what happened to her. Yeah. She, she, she continues to make a statement about survival throughout her life. Uh, and even when her powers are dwindling, she still feels that urge and, and necessity to, to be present at the synagogue. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to, to witness and experience that on a daily basis. So are you happy with the decisions you've made having to do with your careers working within the Jewish community, moving to Israel? I would put it this way. When I look back at decisions I've made regarding career, regarding moves, I can say I, I'm at the time I made the right decision. It's easy in retrospect to say, well, perhaps I could have done this. And I, I, I sometimes I think of different turning points in my life, which we won't get into, uh, where I think, I could have done something a little bit differently. What would have happened had I had I taken that turning point yes. uh, in a, in a different direction? But I think in general, I feel very grateful to have had the different stages in my life, different experiences. Uh, I have no regrets whatsoever about moving to Israel. I think it was an enlightening experience for me in many ways. I learned things about Israel that I would never have learned living in Canada mm-hmm. and you can't possibly learn and that's that's with anything you can hear from witnesses about different things you can try to experience something vicariously but you can never understand unless you go through something yourself and I think that having had the opportunity to live in Israel for as long as I did 17 years uh, gave me an appreciation and an element 
of my Jewish identity that I couldn't possibly have had otherwise. Um, and I think that moving back to, to Canada, because we were, were talking about turning points, uh, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be back here, both in terms of the work that I do, I, I find it very fulfilling, but in terms of being with my parents, coming back at a time when my parents' health was failing, being able to be here for with my mother uh, before and as she passed away, uh, and being there for my father right now. Uh, I consider it an honor and a, and a privilege to be able to be with him and, and spend time with him in these days when, as anyone who gets to that age or who's in situation of, of illness uh, has experienced. Uh, a lot of people say that, that they come back from other places, be it Israel or otherwise, to be with their aging parents. Uh, uh, and I understand that. And it's a very big deal because all those years they took care of you, they raised you, they clothed you, they fed you. Now it's your turn. And yeah. you, it's not even a question. It's it's not even something I can say that comes up except on the the oddest of occasions and in the, in the fewest of opportunities that it's it's just something you take for granted yeah. at least i do i i don't feel any i don't feel it an obligation i don't use that term uh it's 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 uh it's a privilege to be able to be here and and it's not it's not so much payback it's just something that a community and a family and a moral and ethical civilization does uh you don't discard as, as we uh, warn ourselves of doing on the high holidays, uh, the elderly. Don't throw me out because, uh, don't discard me when I become old. Any, any, uh, any, any civilization, religion, community knows the value of, of the elderly, knows the, the debt that it owes them, but knows what value they still have. Uh, even if they're at a point where they can't directly contribute to one's well-being, one's knowledge, the education that one receives from caring for the elderly is something that's invaluable. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I was involved uh, very heavily with my sisters um, in terms of taking care of my mother. My father was a different situation, but yeah, I really relate to what you're saying. So I got to get you back to shul because you're going to be teaching soon, right? But what I want to do is I want to thank you very much for this. I thought that you were terrific. And I think that it was well worth the wait because we've been talking about this for well over a year, right? It's been a while. Oh, yeah, for sure. More than a year. It's been more than a year. We just tried to get the right time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate it. And any closing thoughts? So I, something came to me actually yesterday. And when you talked about Trump at the beginning, and it, just, it just occurred to me yesterday. Yeah. I, I'm sure somebody else has, has thought of this before. You know, we talk about... We try to categorize people, uh, whether it be nationally, religiously, personality-wise, and even in our Jewish tradition, we, we tend to do that. We talk about the, the four species that we use on the festival of Sukkot. We talk about the four sons, different types of personalities, the evil, in terms of the sons on the, the Passover Seder, we talk about the wicked son, the good son, uh, the simple son, the one who doesn't know to ask. And then when we talk about the four species on Sukkot, we talk about four different types of personality as well. Right. So when I was thinking of Trop yesterday, I thought Trop is a much more sophisticated and complete understanding of, of, uh, 
of humanity. What do I mean by that? If you look at Trope, you've got these accents, these notes, these cantillation marks that give you information about how to read text. Meaning without that, the text for the uneducated and even for the educated is something that doesn't have a lot of value, a lot of meaning, uh, rhythm, poetry, style. But when you put those things to the text, it gives it something that uh, it is bare without. And what's the value of those trope? The trope really describe human beings in the most complex of manners. Because when we talk about trope, we talk about accents that are have different status. We talk about those that are Caesar in the Hebrew term, Caesars, the highest in terms of their, their status. And we talk about servant accents, those that serve others, uh, those that don't have a lot of identity except in connection with another one of the elements of the accents. Yes. Some of the accents are elaborate. Some of them are simple. Some of them are lengthy. Some of them are short. Uh, some of them are appropriate in certain situations. Some of them act a different way in other situations. And that's the way we are as human beings. There's an incredible spectrum of people. Uh, it's, it's, it's too simplistic to put them into four categories or a small number of categories. The trope for me uh, represents in a beautiful way uh, the diversity and the variety that exists within humanity. And again, it's a categorization if, if we take it too literally, but it's, it's not so much categorization as an opportunity to appreciate where each person is and perhaps the potential that people have because trop can be used in different contexts, in different situations. They don't always refer to a specific type of text or a specific mood in the text. They can change. And people, whatever their station in life, if they can use that, wherever they start from, uh, they can develop into a different type of trope. So if they start as the simplest of trope, called a munach, which is literally called a servant note, they can perhaps get to the point where they're that once in the entire Torah trope called a karnei farah or a yerech ben yomo, which maybe is in a sense the ultimate of trope, uh, which is the aspiration of, of trope. Uh, and so my final thought is this, that we have to be open to accept and appreciate how diverse people are, but not just take them at a moment in time, appreciate that people can change as much as we tend not to think so at a certain age or whenever, but allow people to, and I remember this is the word I used during one of our first conversations, allow people to evolve and allow people to appreciate that others can evolve into other things. Very good. It's a beautiful thought. Thank you. And you're a beautiful person, Michael. It's been my pleasure, Avram, yeah. and uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation in whatever context we find. I, I do, too. I'm really, really excited that we've done this, and I look forward to posting it. And I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from it. Very often at the end of the show, I like to do a short little synopsis as to what individuals might take out of this, uh, as in our listeners. And I think one of the things that they can take out of it is, is passion, because you're very passionate about what you do and what you've done. Uh, it's also taking steps in your life, as you say, to go outside of your comfort level, um, as that woman did at your synagogue, to read the Torah and to study the services and ultimately to perform in front of the whole congregation. And you've done that in your life, too. So that, to me, is very inspiring. And that's what Had Radio is all about. So thank you again for that. I'm very grateful. It's been and, my honor. 
Yeah, we'll have to do part two someday, right? I'll look forward to it. I also want to thank our sponsors once again, Mark Greif of Greif Philanthropic Services and Gary Samuel in memory of Catherine and Leslie Samuel, his parents. And uh, on Gary's mind nowadays is mindfulness meditation. Uh, perhaps that can be inspiring to you as well. It's very helpful if you experience anxiety. Mindfulness and meditation is one of those things that can calm you know, those voices, those noises inside of you, of which we all have them. So, you know, take an example from Gary and uh, pick up on meditation. I want to thank everybody for listening. You have been listening to Hat Radio. It is the show that schmoozes. You like that? Show that schmoozes? Perfect word. <laughs> Thanks. And God bless. In an increasingly complex world, Greif Philanthropic Solutions is proud to sponsor Hat Radio and the one and only Avram Rosenzweig. No one is better than Avram at simplifying the art of communication, providing inspiration, and unifying people of all backgrounds. GPS is there to help you navigate the charity landscape. Avram is there to help you navigate life. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the hat In the hat Put it all in the hat